This is episode number 459 with Vince Pitaccio II, data scientist and climate advocate. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Crone, and we're very lucky to be joined today by the engaging and fact-filled Vince Pitaccio II. By day, Vince is a data scientist at Amazon, or more specifically, for the gigantic and hugely profitable AWS Amazon Web Services cloud platform. However, that is not the topic of today's podcast. Today we're focusing on green machine learning. Based on his experience as a climate advocate, Vince will be filling us in on specific ways that data science can be used to fight climate change, as well as guidance on how you yourself can take action and have a big impact. During today's episode, Vince and I do delve into some technical aspects of machine learning and data science tools for a few minutes here and there, but by and large, today's episode should be appealing to anyone who's interested in knowing how data and technology can be leveraged to rein in climate change. All right, tons of practical information for you in this episode. Let's jump right in. Vince, welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you on. John, it's a pleasure to be here today and uh, can't wait to uh, really dig into everything with you today. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, this is such an important topic. We will get to all of that. But first, tell us where in the world you are. I mean, I think I know. I have a feeling that you are in uh, New York, in the Bronx, New York. Am I right? The beans have been spilled. I am in the Bronx here in New York City. That's right, in the boogie down. Nice. And so uh, as maybe many listeners or to listeners who have listened to this podcast many times, they probably know that I live in Manhattan. We don't live very far away from each other. Uh, and we actually recently uh, we went to the New York Botanical Garden together. That's right. <laughs> right here in beautiful Bronx. Uh, so uh, we have met many times before. So Vince and I used to work together. Uh, at a company called Untapped, where I still work. And we also, in 2020, started a podcast together called A4N, the Artificial Neural Network News Network, which was a fun podcast. It was a news show on AI machine learning news. It was intended to be very lighthearted. We only made four episodes, but in that time, uh, our second guest on the podcast ever was one Kirill Aramenko. And uh, I suspect that Kirill's experience on the A4N podcast is related to why I am now, uh, why you're now stuck, everyone listening to me right now <laughs> on the Super Data Science Podcast listening to me. Um, and I hope that at least some of you are enjoying that transition. <laughs> um, so anyway, so Vince is very experienced with podcasts and I wanted to bring him on because he knows a ton about the climate and how machine learning and data science can be used to help with the climate. Let's dig into 
this green machine learning topic. So I know that there are some applications of data science and machine learning to tackling climate change. And I really wanted to have that be a focus of an episode. But you are the person who is most knowledgeable by far about that topic. And so I yeah, I wanted to have you on the show and and provide. Uh, a, I know it's going to be a wealth of knowledge on this topic. So before we do that, what is your kind of, how long have you been involved in climate science or, or learning about it? And, you know, what do you do today in that space? Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to identify a time when it really started for me. But when I think about that and have been asked that in the past, the moment that really sticks out for me is actually when I was in first grade. Um, you know, I went to a kindergarten where uh, we celebrated Earth Day for an entire week. And this involved activities like, you know, watching uh, a caterpillar form a chrysalis and turn into a butterfly, uh, everything to just studying the trees out in our playground. Um, and just in general, just being very observant of the natural surroundings that we enjoyed uh, and really paying attention to them and how we interacted with them and how we shared a space on the planet with them rather than um, thinking of them as just um, a product that we could consume or a resource that we could consume for our own benefit. I love and, eating caterpillars. Oh, so delicious. So delicious. Uh, right. As soon as they make the chrysalid, it's so crunchy. A <laughs> uh, big fan of the legs myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> they have all these extra ones once they turn into butterflies. So. <laughs> I actually don't even know if that's true, but um, <laughs> Where do they go? Um, yeah. uh, but you know, in general, I think that's sort of, um, laid the foundation for just uh, my thinking about our interaction with and engagement with the natural world. Um, yeah. Well, you said in the first grade and then you, so I, so did something happen in the first grade that you were like, cause you said, so this whole story was kindergarten. Oh you, yeah, it was first you, grade. I'm sorry. Oh, it was the first grade. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you were going to say it was the same place I went for kindergarten. So uh, I thought it was going to, I thought the story was going to go to something like in kindergarten, we had earth day for a full week. And we really observed Earth. And then when I got to the first grade, we just studied math the whole time through the entire <laughs> Earth Week. And we didn't even acknowledge Earth Day. And that's when I realized I needed to I needed to be a climate advocate because people weren't <laughs> listening. We're just doing math. I don't know. Something like that. Is that that was gonna happen? I don't know why. Anyway, so you met the first grade. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. And then you know, when I was in tenth grade, actually, we had a, a park in my town. Still have a park in that town, um, to an extent. And uh, that park was previously underwater in the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. And it was formed as a park when, uh, I believe in the early 1900s, a, uh, a creek, uh, a canal was formed off the Delaware River. And that channeled water away from where this low-lying land uh, later emerged. And there was a series of locks that would prevent that canal from overflowing its banks. And when I was in 10th grade, not first grade, um, a, some flooding occurred, which caused the dams, uh, the locks to break and all that water flooded our town's park. And this park was like the, the hub of social activity for young people in my town. You know, I had a swimming pool and a giant wooden playground for the kids. Uh, and it was under, I want to say eight to 10 feet of water, which decimated this shared public space for our entire town. Uh, collapsed the swimming pools, destroyed all of the dugouts for Little League, 
And, you know, that was a moment when I realized, wow, like this is a very tangible example of how a changing climate can really destroy resources that are vital to a community. Uh, and from, from then on, you know, going into college and being involved with climate activism in my university, uh, at Drexel University in Philadelphia, um, I always kind of carried that passion with me. Uh, and uh, after school, I actually had a career for about six years working in surgery and brain and spine surgery, um, and was really interested in machine learning and AI just from reading pop science books mostly. And I thought, wow, this seems like a really powerful tool. And uh, I want to study this and learn more about this and find ways to apply this to the climate problem. And uh, that's what eventually led me into the space and a career change and led me into your arms. And yeah, so your first data science job was with us at Untapped. And uh, yeah, you're a brilliant data scientist. So we are very grateful to have had that time with you. And it's great to hear some of the background on your inspiration behind uh, your climate work. I didn't know a lot of that backstory before. I just knew that you were very passionate about the climate. So today, on top of your day job as um, a data scientist at AWS, you moonlight, as it were, as a climate advocate for the Citizens Climate Lobby, right? So yeah. What does that mean? What is the Citizens Climate Lobby and what does a climate advocate do? Yeah, so the Citizens Climate Lobby is an organization. Uh, it's a volunteer, uh, nonpartisan uh, lobbying group. And so we are a nonpartisan group of just citizens uh, in the United States and abroad. And we, uh, we lobby state, local, and federal officials for a particular policy, and namely a carbon fee and dividend. And so, you know, we are really advancing a particular policy proposal uh, where we'd like to see carbon priced in the economy in a way that is equitable uh, for everybody who participates in the economy. Uh, and that's where the dividend part comes in. Um, so as a climate advocate with Citizens Climate Lobby, what we do is we spend a lot of time building relationships with community leaders in our, in our communities and with elected officials and so that we can advocate for this policy um, and really uh, kind of build the political will to take the action um, that we feel will be a very durable climate policy. You know, there are all kinds of climate policies you could advance. Um, some of them are more politically divisive than others. And we feel that this particular policy um, is sticky, as you might say, because it's really consistent with the views of uh, most folks, um, regardless of their political leanings. Nice. And so we're talking about having a price on carbon, right? So if yeah. you emit a ton of carbon, you have to pay a certain amount for emitting that carbon. And typically, I think the way that these schemes work in places where they have been implemented, there's typically a scale over time, right? So there's like um, a floor on the price that typically starts kind of low. And so that provides heavy emitters like factories to start coming up with solutions at that low price, knowing that in the future, the floor on these carbon credits is going to go up. And so you better be innovating to avoid, um, yeah, to avoid unnecessary um, carbon release. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Exactly. And, you know, the, the whole idea is that, you know, right now we have this major externality uh, that is totally unpriced in our economy, which is carbon emissions. And so the idea is to start pricing that externality because it, it has genuine costs, um, both economic um, and otherwise, uh, for everybody on the planet. 
And so this is an, an attempt to correct a market failure. Uh, and so uh, this particular policy prices the carbon at the point where it enters the economy. So at the, you know, at the coal mine, at the oil well, um, at the port, when the oil is imported. And the assumption is that those costs will be passed on to consumers. And so 100% of those fees that are collected are returned as a flat payment to everybody with a social security number in the United States. Um, and so in some ways, you can think of this as being redistributive or progressive. And in fact, the bottom three quintiles of income in the United States would actually come out ahead. And so they would actually profit from something like this. And so and that, that's a result of the fact that uh, those upper two quintiles are uh, very disproportionately more likely to consume more and to generate more emissions. So, um, yeah. Right. And so that, that part I am less familiar with. So the, the, um, the climate price, that's something that I'm used to reading about a lot. I read the economist every week and they are huge fans of carbon pricing as a solution, um, as one solution, um, in climate change or for avoiding climate change. Uh, but I didn't know much about this dividend. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's very interesting to hear. I'd never heard that from you before. Cool to know about that. But now let's jump to the topic that I think our listeners really want to hear about, which is um, how machine learning and data science can be used to tackle climate change alongside policy initiatives like um, carbon pricing schemes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before I, I go into any specifics, I just want to make real clear that AI and machine learning, both extremely powerful tools in this battle. Um, but ultimately, climate change is such a big problem that it's going to take all hands on deck. And anything that we do in the AI space will need to be in collaboration with subject matter experts in other domains. Uh, and so that allows us to uh, accelerate the pace of advancement uh, and development of new capabilities within those existing domains uh, so that they can be more readily capable of dealing with and tackling climate change. And some of those domains where we can apply them are, you know, might seem somewhat uh, obvious, you know, places like transportation, you know, electrification of the transportation system or reducing transportation activity by optimizing routes and things like that. But some of them are actually pretty surprising, at least to me. Um, some of the ways that AI could be applied. So just you know, to list some of the places we could be applying AI and machine learning are things like electricity systems. You know, we could be um, enabling low carbon electricity um, by optimizing uh, solar generation or uh, wind generation and power delivery uh, using you know predictive methods uh, using uh, hyperlocal weather predictions, for example. Um, buildings and cities, optimizing buildings by uh, controlling uh, their HVAC and lighting systems in a very predictive way or an optimized way um, is another great example. I mean, uh, Google has done amazing work in this field, optimizing the energy usage of their data centers uh, using uh, some AI and machine learning techniques. Um, and this it's, goes all the uh, way Some of the research out of the DeepMind uh, team at Google? Yeah, uh, it was exactly. helpful. So, like, uh, some deep reinforcement learning involved in, uh, yeah, saving some money in those costs in the, in the centers. I didn't realize that that also had. Of course, it does. I mean, I've only ever thought about that as something that saves them money. 
Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about how that's also good for the climate to obviously be emitting less. Hey everybody, hope you're enjoying this amazing episode. We've got a quick announcement and then we'll get straight back to it. The announcement is that Data Science Go Virtual number three is approaching quickly. It's happening on April 10th to 11th and you can get your free tickets today at datasciencego.com virtual. We've got incredible speakers, hands-on workshops, and an expo area that you can virtually attend. And of course, we've also brought back one of the most popular parts of DSGO Virtual, the networking sessions. These sessions are the best way to become part of our global data science community. Over the course of the conference, there will be several three-minute speed networking sessions in which you connect with a randomly selected data scientist from anywhere in the world. After the three minutes, if you like each other and you'd like to remain connected, you hit the connect button and you can stay in touch. Once again, every aspect of the Data Science Go conference is absolutely free. Register for your ticket today at datasciencego.com virtual, and we'll see you there. And now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, you know, I think it's very common for us to think of saving money and saving the planet as being mutually exclusive. But, you know, in many cases, those two ideas are completely consistent with one another and totally compatible with one another. A great example of this is uh, things like supply chain optimization. You know, how can you optimally pack the most packages into a single delivery truck and take the shortest possible route to deliver all of those packages? And that's a great application of AI. And not only does that minimize the emissions that that delivery truck will generate, it also reduces the cost associated with operating it. And so there are tons of examples that we see with this. Another example is with precision agriculture. You know, it's important as the human population continues to grow, that we're able to produce enough food to feed everybody around the world. And the field of agriculture is already incredibly, uh, incredibly sophisticated with its automation and um, with its ability to scale technology in order to meet the demands of a growing population. But to be able to continue to do that and continue to push that envelope, um, AI is a gr great and very powerful tool to do that. Uh, using computer vision to help identify um, sickness in plants or be able to extract plants from the ground to reduce manual labor would allow you to scale uh, your farming operations. And in a similar vein, you know, vertical farming is another place uh, where there's a lot of opportunity for us to leverage uh, automation and AI. And, you know, there's a lot of work to do there. And a lot of that is not necessarily related to AI or machine learning, but that's just another example of where uh, cost and environmental responsibility are completely consistent with one another. Those are all super cool examples. I am fascinated by ideas around vertical farming and precision agriculture. I think it's really cool to think that, um, you know, even in urban areas, you could have so much grown in the urban area in unused buildings or on the roofs of buildings. Um, when I first heard about how machine learning was being applied to vertical farming and agriculture from you, I went and found a documentary on it and I was blown away. I was like, Oh, this is some totally cool new thing. Like I, I, I like. I wonder if this is completely uncharted territory, and discovered that there is a huge business already existing in the New York area. So New Jersey, Brooklyn, there are huge um, 
vertical and indoor farming um, ops, <laughs> grow ops. <Yes. laughs> I think that's something different. But uh, <laughs> growing plants. Yeah, it's, you're right. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's already. Um, it's an industry that's experiencing explosive growth right now, and I think it's fantastic. Um, and there's even a startup in California that is trying to 100% automate the process. Uh, not just the growing process, but also the harvesting process and the packaging process so that you could imagine just a giant warehouse where no one even works in there, but you just are able to receive produce from it. It's like a giant produce dispensing machine. Um, And, you know, I think there's a long way to go still. Vertical farming right now has been very successful. I'd be surprised if you told me that was like, they're almost done. (laughs) (laughs) They're opening next week. Pretty much finished. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, but I think, you know, vertical farming... It, it, right now, it's sophisticated at producing microgreens and uh, premium lettuces at a premium cost. And I think that the next step uh, for vertical farming will be, okay, how can we scale this technology both in size to, to make it accessible to more people in more places, but also how do we expand the types of foods that we can grow here? Uh, because something like lettuce is going to be a much easier challenge to tackle in a warehouse than growing a row crop like corn. Um, right. And so, yeah, it's it, the, that's sort of the frontier for vertical farming. And uh, I'm really excited to see kind of where that goes. Nice. I don't want to spend too much time on vertical farming because I'm sure there's tons of topics to cover, but why is it more expensive? Ah, that's a good question. And I think the, the major expensive input for vertical farming is energy. Um, lighting is generally going to be more expensive than sunlight. And that is also sort of the main uh, point where advances are continuing to drive the costs down to be competitive with traditional agriculture. Uh, As we see more uh, efficient LED lighting and more research around the exact bandwidths of light that a plant needs to grow and the exact amount of light energy that a plant needs to grow, uh, we're seeing further and further improvements in the efficiency of lighting. Nice. And that's a potential predictive modeling opportunity right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So vertical farming, optimizing energy delivery. What else we got? What else can we do with machine learning? Yeah. And and this is an area that I think is interesting is just social impact. A great example of this that that I love is uh, Dr. John Cook, who uh, many folks have probably heard the the stat of 95% of of uh, scientists believe that climate change is real and a big problem. Uh, and that's a bit of an outdated statistic at this point. But when that data point started actually being publicized, uh, they were quoting a paper by John Cook. And uh, he has Presumably since, even more people, even more scientists. Uh, yeah, right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, but uh, I had an opportunity to meet him actually at a Citizens Climate Lobby conference in D.C. And... Uh, I told him, hey, I'm really interested in machine learning and AI. This is before I worked in the field. And I said, how can I make an impact in this space? And he told me about a project he was working on called the CARDS system, C-A-R-D-S. And basically, it's a it was a natural language processing model that could ingest articles or tweets and that could classify them in terms of how likely they were to be misinformation about climate change. And so the idea here is how can we use AI to identify falsified or bad information about climate change so that we can raise public awareness 
uh, and give people correct information in an automated way. And you know, there are a lot of other uh, social impact opportunities for applying AI. Um, you know, things like uh, managing infrastructure is just um, is just a fantastic opportunity for applying AI and machine learning that would have an enormous impact on societies everywhere. Nice. That is a cool one. I hadn't thought of, I would never have, I mean, maybe not never, it had never occurred to me in the past that natural language processing could also be used in climate change. It just, there isn't an obvious link there, but now that you mention it, that is, yeah, identifying misinformation is definitely a, a good use of NLP. Yeah, and there are a lot of surprising ways that AI and machine learning can be applied here, uh, and perhaps some that are not so surprising. And I think a good example there is in climate modeling. You know, we have a ton of existing models that some use machine learning and some don't uh, to try to predict uh, what the climate will look like depending on uh, different input parameters. And generally what we do is we build a big ensemble of all of those models and try to use those as a way to, to form some sort of consensus over time. Um, but being able to ingest larger and larger amounts of uh, more hyper-local data uh, to be get better predictions over time would really help us with adaptation, which is one part of dealing with climate change that's a little different than mitigation. Uh, but being able to predict what the climate will look like in the future would play a huge role in letting us adapt to it. Um, and, you know, a lot of that also could be related to forecasting extreme events. How much more likely are we to experience superstorms in the future? Uh, and so getting uh, good climate prediction models would be a great resource there in helping us predict that and really be prepared for them in the future. Yeah. How high do we need to build the flood walls around Manhattan or exactly uh, the new orleans or whatever yeah and one of the specific uh, advancements in that area that i'm very excited about is uh what i would call kind of colloquially uh, physics layers in neural networks uh which basically um, constrain the parameter search space that you're exploring when you're trying to train a neural network uh to that region which is consistent with the laws of physics uh, so rather than having an infinite search space over your parameter space, you are uh, you have a smaller infinite search space uh, where the laws of physics are respected. Uh, and so there's some really promising results coming out of that area now that I think will, will have a big impact in this field. All right. I want to talk about that for a second. It isn't directly related to climate change, but do you mean, I'm unfamiliar with this. So do you mean that the outputs of the model are are physically possible or something to do with the model weights respecting the laws of physics? Uh, the, the former mostly. And there are a number of different techniques, uh, techniques for this, phew. but I think. <laughs> like, oh man, what is that even? I was, I was, my mind just bent there. I was trying to think of how like neural network weights could like behave the laws of physics. And I was like, man. No, they, they tend to be, uh, yeah. Uh, pretty pretty good about that. You know, I think the the simplest version of this is something like regularization uh, or a penalty applied to your loss function if the result of your model's output for during a training run violates the laws of physics, uh, and so you heavily penalize the model for for making predictions that are um, impossible. Basically, nice. It could never be that hot. <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Uh, so climate modeling, you're right. I guess that is a relatively obvious use of machine learning in the climate space, but that's a very cool innovation nonetheless. You got anything else for us on your list there? Yeah, and, and this is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, as much as climate change is definitely a systemic global problem, um, and we need action on a, on a social and societal level, uh, personally, I believe that individual action is also very important uh, because many individuals taking individual action result in society level action. Uh, and so I think that we could really help people make good decisions in their personal lives by giving them better information to inform their decision making day to day. You know, an example of that, you know, is simply uh, finding a way to uh, help us make better consumption choices day to day uh, in terms of environmental impact. You know, if I go to the grocery store today and I pick up an apple or I pick up a steak, th there's nothing there telling me what the environmental footprint might be to consuming Ooh, one of those. Oh, cool. I hadn't thought of that before. So it would be like nutrition information. So in New York City for a while now, it has been required that if you're a restaurant of a certain size, you have to publish the calorie count um, next to any food item. And so you could have the same thing for like uh, carbon emissions or something, right? Exactly. And, you know, it doesn't need to be perfect, but like having some sense that like, you know, this Macintosh apple, you know, <laughs> two thirds of the, the crop is destroyed on its way to the store, grocery store uh, versus this Fuji apple, which is much more efficient. Just having some qualitative way to compare these two might make me choose one apple versus the other, which right. is a great way to tie financial incentives to environmental outcomes. Um, but also just helping me as a consumer choose between you know an apple or a steak or a steak and tofu if, if I'm into tofu. Um, just understanding what the actual effects are on the planet from my consumption decisions and not just with food, uh, with anything. Uh, and we could be using machine learning or AI to sort of model these phenomena and just get a sort of qualitative or quantitative understanding of, of what the impacts are of our consumption choices. Nice. That's cool. I think that brands, some aware brands, uh, particularly in areas that might have questionable green standards. So for example, Something that might surprise listeners, and you might actually know this stat much more than me, Vince, but almonds use up a crazy amount of water. And so there's a lot of almond farming in California, and California has a lot of droughts, and almond farmers take a lot of the blame for those droughts. And so I noticed just this week that on my particular brand of almond milk, it says right on the bottle, there's like a like one entire side panel of the almond milk container says that they somehow offset all of that water use. Um, wow. That's How? Interesting. Yeah, that was my <laughs> next question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, good for them. That's, that's great. But uh, wow. <laughs> they uh, ship in a bunch of water bottles <laughs> into California. Uh, just industrial scale dehumidifiers capturing water from the air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's a good question. They use cold fusion to have hydrogen and oxygen in the air combined together to form water. They haven't thought of any other better uses of that cold fusion system yet. There are none. There are none. <laughs> yeah, that'll do That's it. The best one. almond farming. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, um, all right. So 
those are all awesome use cases of machine learning, data science, and AI for climate space. But are there any dangers or risks associated with using tools? Uh, do we need to be careful? Um, so I think we're coming up next in the show, we're going to provide people with tips on how they, as a data scientist or as just a concerned citizen or what have you, how they can be involved in the fight against climate change, maybe how they could even use data science or machine learning to make an impact. But before we get to that, is there anything that they should think about before they do? Definitely. And, you know, ultimately, John, climate change is a global problem that has local impact that disproportionately affects disenfranchised and vulnerable communities. So any strategies that we want to use to address climate change need to be very careful to avoid reinforcing existing inequities and perhaps should even focus on targeting vulnerable people and places. You know, because otherwise we could end up in a situation where you know, we're creating solutions for the areas that might not need them and avoiding creating solutions for places and people that need them most. So AI and machine learning, like any other tool in our toolkit, uh, are tools that we can and should wield uh, for solving this problem. But it's important that we're thoughtful about collaborating with the subject matter domain experts uh, that I talked about earlier. Uh, so that we can make sure that we're having a big impact. And, and some of the risks that are associated with that come down to things like, you know, making sure we're not using too complex of a tool for what might actually be a simple problem. Uh, because, you, you know, just as an extreme example, imagine if I wanted to train GPT-3 uh, in order to perform sentiment analysis on tweets about climate change. And, you know, just imagine the, the carbon emissions associated with training a model of that size. And what am I actually getting from that when I could have just used a logistic regression model, you know, over some word embeddings or something like that? Yeah. In case um, you aren't aware, listener, GPT-3 is an enormous natural language model that has hundreds of billions of parameters. And uh, yeah, so the carbon footprint is actually something that it's a contentious issue. And I've been thinking about having this be a specific topic on the podcast. I should do that sometime soon. But there's an interesting there's been. Um, a huge paper. Uh, so at the time of recording, we're recording in early March. And just a few weeks ago, there was a big paper released um, called Stochastic Parrots. And it's a paper um, out of from researchers at the University of Washington and former, controversially former, as well as current Google employees talking about some of the um, negative aspects of these giant language models. So like GPT-3 has been hailed as a huge achievement in the natural language space. Um, and I haven't read all the paper, but I know that the idea of the stochastic parrots title uh, is implying how, you know, parrots don't really have an understanding of natural language, but they can squawk some things back at you that sound impressive. Um, and these stochastic parrots can be like a parrot with a little bit of randomness in it. Stochastic <laughs> just means randomness. Um, but that they're not actually intelligent in, in the way that a uh, human is intelligent. And so <clears throat> anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying that maybe these huge natural language models 
aren't as effective as um, some media splashes have suggested. And on top of that, there could be negative side effects like huge impacts on the climate. So anyway, absolutely sorry to uh, take away from uh, from your time there, Vince. No, thank you for <laughs> adding to the conversation. <laughs> and we'll your time on at the end of the podcast. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, and, and I mean, to your point, you know, it, it's just a giant hammer for what might end up being, in some cases, a, a small nail. You know, or, or inversely, there, there's a risk in the inverse, which is that um, a, as a computer scientist, we might have an oversimplified understanding of a particularly nuanced or complicated problem and our attempt to solve it without collaborating with domain experts uh, could cause more harm than good in some way or another, in some nuanced way or th through some downstream impact. Um, yeah, and just in general, the failure to uh, be able to predict unforeseen risks is a major risk in this kind of work when you're not collaborating. And so basically the theme of everything I'm saying here is that collaboration is really key. Uh, listening to people in other domains, um, recognizing um, that as computer scientists working in AI and machine learning, we have a particular domain of knowledge that is powerful at accelerating other domains uh, will be critical to making a big impact and making a positive impact. Nice, so understood. Machine learning is only a tool. We do need to be careful how we wield it, no doubt. So how can people wield machine learning to make a difference themselves? How can our listeners make an impact? Yeah, so I think ultimately, you know, we want to be, uh, there are a lot of us who want to be involved in uh, using the skills and the tools that we have to be helping with this. And um, work, you know, coming off of what I said a moment ago, I think the best way to do this is to uh, collaborate with folks uh, from other domains and finding ways to do that is key. And so I would recommend that folks who are interested in this uh, check out Climate Change AI, which is an organization started by Priya Dante, who is a PhD uh, student at Carnegie Mellon University. And, um, you know, that is an organization that is historically kind of oriented towards researchers in the field, but is rapidly expanding to sort of encompass uh, and include folks from industry as well. And there are a lot of opportunities there to network and connect with collaborators and find ways to have a great impact and to just learn uh, more about uh, where the need is. And, you know, speaking about that, about climate change AI and Priya Dante, uh, she was one of the key authors behind a seminal work in this space called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. It is a hundred oh, plus page paper. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I hadn't made that connection. Yeah. It's all coming together. There are so uh, many names on that paper. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And some, some big names too. Uh, some household uh, machine learning. Joshua uh, Bengio's on there, right? Yep. Yes, he is. Mm -hmm. Andrew Wu. Oh, um, and so, um, yeah. So that organization is, is open to folks who are interested in this space and finding ways to collaborate with others. But definitely check out that paper. It's long at over 100 pages. Uh, and that's because it has an enormous amount of extremely valuable information on everything we talked about today. And, you know, we touched on a few areas where machine learning and AI can have an impact. And this paper is just basically the, the Bible or the encyclopedia of, um, of possible 
uh, avenues to explore. And, and there are even business opportunities that can be made out of almost any single one of these um, that we're interested in. And in fact, there is a website that I would recommend your listeners to check out uh, called The Diamond List, the diamondlist.co, which uh, basically is a list of uh, companies that are making significant climate impact. And uh, that's a great place to check out um, you know, what, what sort of activity is happening right now in industry that's focused on having a positive impact. Um, and just in, in terms of private uh, corporate action, there's also a website called climatevoice.org that is a great place for those who are in industry to find ways um, to come together and to advocate uh, for climate action and climate policy um, together. <laughs> nice. Uh, great choice of final word. Um, so that's brilliant. Uh, so we've got uh, climate change, AI, diamondlist.co, climatevoice.org. Um, I love it, Vince. Thank you for those uh, straightforward tips for how people could wield ML themselves. So in addition to the paper that you just cited, which is the encyclopedia for people uh, wanting to apply machine learning to tackling climate change, do you have any other books that you recommend that people should read? Yeah, you know, personally, I like to take a very pragmatic approach to addressing climate change. Um, and so sometimes when we dig into the numbers and do the math, we find that our expectations are slightly violated in terms of what we think will have the biggest impact. So there's an amazing book I have here actually called Drawdown. You get it in the frame. Uh, and this book basically lists, um, it's a comprehensive plan of, of ways to uh, reverse global warming is the, the subtitle of the book. And basically this goes through uh, dozens of uh, different um, actions that we can take to, to try to uh, mitigate climate change and then ranks them quantitatively by the impact they'll have. And there are some pretty surprising outcomes here. In fact, the number one most impactful um, issue, according to the, the numbers in this book, is refrigeration. And so oh, no. this book suggests that refrigeration and modernizing the way that we cool things is perhaps the single most important climate issue. And so I would definitely recommend readers to check out this book uh, because it's a great way to reframe our understanding of what does and does not have a big impact. Brilliant. So we've learned a lot from you in this episode, tons of resources to check out, things to read on our own. But how can we follow you or get in touch with you if, we have, uh, if we'd like to learn more from you about uh, machine learning, applied to climate change, or just climate change generally? Yeah, I would definitely invite people to add me on LinkedIn. Uh, Vince Pataccio II on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'd be happy to connect with folks. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Vince. And hopefully we can have you on again soon to give us an update on other big news in the green machine learning space. It was absolutely my pleasure, John. Thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to come and talk to you today about this. My pleasure. Catch you soon. Wow. Vince sure knows a ton about cutting-edge data science as well as how machine learning can be used to fight climate change, doesn't he? In today's episode, we covered tons of green machine learning applications, including optimizing energy delivery, precision agriculture, identification of misinformation, and climate modeling. 
We also discussed the importance of working with subject matter experts when designing climate change solutions in order to ensure you're maximizing global impact and avoiding the reinforcement of historical inequities. And Vince provided us with a number of specific resources to enable us to move forward and take action ourselves, ranging from the highly technical and detailed tackling climate change with machine learning paper to organizations we can get involved with like Climate Change AI, DiamondList.co, and ClimateVoice.org. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, any materials mentioned on the show, and URLs for Vince's LinkedIn profile at superdatascience.com slash 459. That's superdatascience.com slash 459. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where we have a high fidelity, smiley face filled video version of this episode. I also encourage you to follow or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter, where my Twitter handle is at John Learns, to let me know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to respond to your comments or questions in public and get a conversation going. You're also welcome to add me on LinkedIn, but it might be a good idea to mention you are listening to the Super Data Science Podcast so that I know you're not a random salesperson. Since this podcast is free, if you'd like a hugely helpful way to show your support for my work, then I'd be very grateful indeed if you made your way to the Data Community Content Creator Awards nomination form. The link is in the show notes. Of course, we'd love you to nominate the Super Data Science Podcast for Category 7, the podcast or talk show category. I'd also love my name, John Crone, nominated for Category 8, the textbook category, for my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. And finally, I'd also love my name, again, John Crone, nominated for Category 2, the machine learning and AI YouTube category for my YouTube channel, which contains tons of free videos on deep learning, linear algebra applications, and machine learning libraries. All right. Thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another great episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>